0: Well, happy Easter, everyone. It's great to see you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jay Box. I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church, and I'm so glad that you're here to join us for our dinosaur-themed Easter service. <laughs> is that awesome? We love meeting at Lee Elementary. We never know what kind of backdrop we're going to get, but I'll tell you, this is the best one so far. Pretty, pretty awesome. Well, hey, it's probably no surprise to you, but I, I absolutely love this day. You know, this probably comes with the job description, but I really do. I, I love this day. I love it because what we're celebrating is the greatest message of hope. For containing the good news of Jesus' resurrection is the hope of a future and present restoration. Restoration of God. And I'm convinced that whether you recognize it or not, we all long for the hope that this day brings. See, for if Jesus really rose again, then that means that this life is, is not all that there is. There, there really is, you know, life after death. That we are not just, you know, dust in the wind. But there, there really is more once we die. But it's even more than that. This day means that the future that we have to look forward to is personal. For there are many people who believe... And have believed that when you die, you'll still continue to exist. You know, you'll continue on, but in some impersonal way. Think, uh, you know, the circle of life. The, you know, Lion King fame. Or, you know, Eastern religions who say that, yeah, you'll still, when you die, you'll, you'll still continue on. But as a part of the, you know, kind of all soul. So not in a, a, not in a personal way. And, and friends, I'll just be honest with you. I don't, I don't know. I don't, maybe you're different than I am. But, like, that idea of continue on but in an impersonal way, it's not satisfying to me. It's because I think that our hearts, we, we long to do more than just continue on. Like the deepest desires of our heart is to be loved and to love. To have a personal experience where you can be loved and, and love. And just the idea of, of, of continue on, it, it, it falls short of that. But if Jesus really did rise again, if what we're celebrating today is true, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then that means that our future that we have to look forward to is a personal one. And I think about what Jesus did in Luke 24. After he died and he rose again, he appears before his friends, his disciples, and standing before them, he says this, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Like I'm not just some part of a life force. I still have my personal identity. I am who I am, and I know you, and and you know me. And what that means is, if is uh, the future, the hope of this day. It's not just that we will exist, but that we will exist in a personal way. But even beyond that, that we what we have to look forward to this future hope is is a material, a a physical hope as well. See, because the the resurrection isn't just that there's going to be you know the isn't just the promise of some like spiritual consolation for the life that you lost. And it's not even it's not even that there's going to be you know just a restoration of the life you lost. But the, the, the promise of the resurrection is, is the hope that you will have the life that you always wanted but never had, a new life, a better life, and a material life. See, like the resurrection is, is about flesh and bones. It's about bodies. In fact, in the Scripture, what we hear is that the, the, the ultimate Saving work of Jesus, when it comes to its climatic end, it comes together with the new heavens and the new earth. The restoration of the physical world. And so our future, What the resurrection, the hope that it brings, friends, why I say it's the greatest message of hope is because it tells us we have a future. It's a personal future. And it's a physical, it's a material future where you don't just get the life... That you lost, but the life that you wish that you had. A new body, a restored and a better new life. I mean, Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, when, when Paul's talking about Jesus' resurrection, he says that Jesus' resurrection was the first, first fruits of the resurrection. meaning mean, that Jesus' resurrection gives us the first taste or the glimpse into what the resurrection promises. And what Jesus had as it was a new body. If you ever wondered when you read through the narrative accounts of Jesus uh, uh, after he rose again, and there's this kind of weird deal, like people don't fully recognize him right away. And you're like, well, why don't they recognize him? He had a new body. He didn't just get his old body back. He got a new body. And like that tells us, as the first fruits of the resurrection, that's what we have to look forward to as well. Not just what we have. Not just restored what we have. But new and improved. Because this is the greatest message of hope that there is. That what we see in Jesus and what we see and we celebrate the resurrection is a real future that's personal, material, and better than before. But here's the thing. How do you know if that's your future? Like, if that's really what the promise of the resurrection... Then, how do you know if that's what you have, your hope, you know, what you have to look forward to? See, because, you know, many religions today will say that, you know, you can live personally with God in the future, but only if you live a, a virtuous life, a good enough life. But who can be certain, right? If you're good enough. I mean, how good is good enough? how can you know if it's this future that awaits you? You ever wondered that? Like, I mean, have you ever messed up so, so horrifically that you thought, hey, there's no way God will ever want anything to do with me again? Like, there's no way that he's going to ever take me back or invite me in. Have you you ever been there? I'll tell you, I have. Have you, have you ever become so aware of your shortcomings, of your sin or selfishness, that you've realized that you are failing to live up to your own, like your own personal standard? Much less God's perfect moral standard? And Have, have you come face to face with that reality to say, man, you know what? Like if I can't even measure up to my own standard, what hope do I have? that I would measure up to God's. What hope do we have? That the future, that the promise, the hope of the resurrection is your future and your hope and your promise. How do we know if we're ever good enough? Well, that's another reason why what we're celebrating is such good news. Because when I, if I were to pick you know, one word To sum up Jesus' work after his resurrection, like post-resurrection, one word to sum up what his ministry was all about, it would be the word restoration. Restoration. Restoration meaning renewal, repair, to reestablish things to how they were originally supposed to be. And like Jesus died to enable restoration. And then he came out of the tomb on the third day on a mission to make it so to restore what had been broken and to fill us with the hope that there is nothing that Jesus does not have the power to renew, which, friends, hear this, includes you and me no matter how messed up we are or how messed up the things that we have done are or the things that we are currently doing are. And so I want to show you why I say that in John, uh, by looking at John 21 today. Because guys, if this is true, and that Jesus died to bring about this restoration, this future restoration where it, it, where we really live, and it's and it's it's personal and it's physical, and it's better than we imagine, but that Jesus also rose to bring that about by inviting us into it, no matter where we are. Like that is incredible, incredibly good news. That's why I'm saying it's the greatest message of hope there is. But we got to know: is this hope really for us? All of us, no matter who we are and what we've done. So let's look at John 21. If you will, open up your Bibles there or pull up John 21 on your phone. I also have the, the words up here on the slides for us so you can follow along that way if that's what you would prefer. But when you, if you get there, hold your spot because it's going to take a minute before I actually read this passage because I need to set up the scene for you because for you to understand this restoration that Jesus promises us that He died to be able to bring about, and that He came out of the grave in order to offer to everyone. We have to first understand the need for restoration, and specifically, we need to understand the need for uh, this guy's Peter's restoration because that's who we're going to be looking at in John chapter twenty-one. And I think it's I think that this story we're about to look at is like one of the greatest. It's one of the greatest messages, one of the greatest stories in all of the Bible and perhaps even all of literature about restoration. But to understand, you got to understand the background. So here's, here it is. Uh, so there's this guy, Peter. Um, he's one of Jesus' closest friends. He's one of the 12 disciples, but even more than that, he's, he is uh, one of the inner three. So Peter, James, and John were like the best friends of Jesus. And on the night that Jesus was arrested... The night before Jesus would be crucified, Peter wronged Jesus so horrifically that he was convinced that his relationship with Jesus was over. Now, what, what would cause Peter to think that like, he's done something so bad that, that even Jesus, is, you know, one of his best friends, best friend, would, would want nothing to do with him any longer? Well, here's what he did. On the night that Jesus was arrested, the night before he would be crucified, Jesus had all of his disciples together to eat the Passover meal. We talked about that last week. And during that meal, Jesus tells them that they're all going to abandon him. It was it was a happy conversation, right? He says, "Y'all are all going to abandon me." Peter says, "Hey, hey, hey Jesus, <laughs> no way, no way. I mean, I mean, like, you know, I, maybe." Maybe these other guys, I mean, this is wild because the other guys are sitting at the table, but Peter says, hey, even if all of them fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Like, Jesus, you might be right about these, these guys, but let me tell you, not not me. I love you so much more than they do. Even if I have to go to prison, even if I have to die, I'm, I'm with you no matter what. What? And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Hey, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, um, guess who was right? <laughs> Jesus or Peter? <laughs> uh, Jesus was. All four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contain the story of Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. So in like John 18, we're told that after Jesus was arrested and take, taken before the high priest, Peter managed to get into the courtyard where this kangaroo court was being held. And as he was standing off in the distance, warming himself by the fire, he was asked three separate times if he was one of Jesus' disciples. And all three times he denied it. The first time he denied it, it was to a little girl. And then the third time he denied it, according to the Gospel of Mark, he, and this is to quote Mark, he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Now, when it says that he called down curses, think about this. Who was he calling down curses on? Well, himself? No, that would, that would be weird, right? No. Or the, his interrogators? No, that, that wouldn't help the situation. No, he's, he's calling down curses on Jesus, He's calling out curses on Jesus because in that shame and honor culture where loyalty was such a huge thing i mean so much bigger than it is today like for today for us guys like if you stay in the same job for 3 years like you're high loyal but in that culture like, every, like it's everything it's everything was about loyalty and for him to call down curses on Jesus would absolutely convince those that were asking, like, hey, I think you were, I think you were one of his disciples. Yeah, I think I saw you with him. And then he, he starts calling down curses on Jesus, and they're like, okay, yeah, we're, we're, you know, clearly we're mistaken. Because there is no way someone would, that followed Jesus would call down curses on Jesus. And yet that's what Peter does. And then we're told, and the third time that he denies Jesus... The rooster did crow, just as Jesus had predicted. And Peter, at that moment, remembers what Jesus said would happen, and he just breaks down. We're told that he wept bitterly. Have you, have you ever been in that place before? When you, when you come face to face with like the worst thing you've ever done, maybe you're caught in it, and you just, you just weep, bitterly because you know that you've just acted so selfishly and you've hurt someone you love and you know it and they know it that you have really messed up and perhaps you just have that feeling like nothing will ever be okay again as that's where peter was as he wept bitterly that night and of course he should have I mean, because not only has he denied Jesus, but think about the timing of him denying Jesus. It's at Jesus' greatest need. I mean, Jesus is arrested. He's being tried. He's being beaten. He's about to be crucified. Of all the times that Jesus would want his best friend to be by his side, for him to be praying for him and be present with him, it would be this moment, and it's in this moment that Peter is calling out curses on Jesus. Yeah, he, he, we could all say he should be weeping bitterly. He should feel terrible. And he did. And here's the thing that because of Peter's great failure and sin, he carries with him, past Jesus' resurrection, an incredible sense of shame and guilt. That he is unable to get over what he had done after Jesus, even after Jesus rises again. You see, in John 20, we read about Jesus' resurrection, and he, first, he appears first to Mary Magdalene, then he appears twice to the disciples. And so they all know that he's alive, and everyone is pumped up and, and, and you know, Clearly, they, they should be, right? Like, Jesus, everything he said that he would do and everything he said about who he was has been confirmed. He really is the Messiah. He really is God the Son who is our sacrifice, the, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, and he really has defeated sin and death, just like he said, he would. and all of his followers are just overjoyed. Except Peter. And here's why I say that. Finally, We'll get to John 21. So if you want to look at this, look what John 21 says. It says, afterward, that's after, the Jesus, after Jesus had appeared two times already to the disciples. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. And then, now look, look at what Peter says. I'm going out to fish. I'm going out to fish. Okay, now, some of you guys are like, sweet, yeah. But uh, there's nothing wrong about going out to fish. But, except the greatest thing in all of history has just happened, and they saw it with their eyes. They saw the living Jesus after he had died and risen again. And this is Peter's response. Yeah, Jesus just defeated sin and death. I think I'll go fishing. Now, it's not just that he's going to go fishing. The other reason why this is a big deal is because, perhaps some of y'all are familiar with this, Peter's trade, his, his career prior to being called by Jesus to follow him and be Jesus' disciple was that he was a fisherman. And given that context, what you see here is that Peter is saying, look... I, I know that Jesus is risen again. I've seen him with my own eyes, and that is so awesome. It's so great, except that, you know, I denied him. I mean, I betrayed him. And and, and in some ways, the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead makes it worse for Peter, because now there's no doubt. You know, I didn't just deny my friend Jesus. I denied my Lord Jesus, that he's truly the Messiah and I betrayed him in his greatest time of need? Peter's got to be thinking, hey, there's just no way. There's no way that I can act like that didn't happen. There's no way that I can just keep on following Jesus as if, like, we're good. I, there's no hope. Things between me and Jesus were never going to be the same. I have screwed up. I have messed up too so I'm out of here. He says, I'm going out to fish. And that's not a small thing. I mean, he's in Jerusalem. He's going to go to the Sea of Galilee. That's where his old business was, the Sea of Galilee. And so that if you were to be in Jerusalem now and take a car and drive to the Sea of Galilee, it'd take you over an hour. So, I mean, he's really out of there. He's like, hey, you guys, y'all have fun with Jesus, but I'm, I'm, I'm gone. Things are just too messed up. I've got no hope. Now, thankfully, Peter has some good friends. They know how down in the dumps he is, so they don't just let him go. He, they say this at the very end of verse 3. It says, they, the other six disciples that were with him, said, hey, we'll go with you. Not, hey, we'll go fish too, but hey, we'll go with you. We'll be, we'll be with you. And so they went out and got onto the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Okay, now, I want you all to think about this for a second. If you're Jesus... Or if I am Jesus, what's our, what's the response here to Peter? I mean, it, is it not, hey, hey, Peter, if you want to go, don't let the door hit you on your way out. You know? I mean, come on. Like, you, know, you, you deny me. You deny me to a little girl. You call down curses on me when I was being crucified the day right before I was crucified. Like, yeah. I mean, if you, like... See you, man. I mean, if you want to go, I'm not going to stand in your way. It's good that I'm not Jesus, right? (laughs) That's that's not Jesus' response. Why? Because Jesus is a restorer. And that he came out of the tomb with the mission to say, now that I have died for the sins of the world, I have enabled there to be reconciliation between God and mankind. Now I'm headed out to bring that about, to offer that to people, to invite people in to be restored to God. And so Jesus comes to restore Peter. Look at what verse 4 says. One of the best verses given this context. One of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. Because look at this. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. Early in the morning, this could say, Jesus came after Peter. He came to where Peter was. He chased after Peter. And in the next few verses, what we're going to see is that Jesus does something so extremely personal and meaningful to Peter to bring about the offer of restoration to his friend that had severely betrayed him. Look what happens. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Again, a new body, don't recognize him. Verse 5, he called out to them, "'Friends, haven't you any fish?' "'No,' they answered. And he said, "'Throw your net on the right side of the boat, "'and you will find some.' And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish." And then the disciples whom Jesus loved, which that's John who's writing this and is worth, like, you know, lots of comments that that's how he always refers to himself. It's amazing. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. So he takes his coat, he, write, he, he ties it on him, and he jumps into the water. And we see that he swims swims to jesus now this is kind of weird right like jesus is appearing to his disciples and he's like he shows up and he's like hey you caught, any, caught anything and then he has them do this like miracle with the fish catch and you're like oh, wow that's interesting okay cool and what's the point of that and then what's also really weird and, and really puzzling given all that we've just talked about well peter's been running from jesus Hopeless that anything ever, that things would ever be good between him and Jesus. Knowing that there's nothing that he could do to ever make things right with Jesus. Why would he all of a sudden, when he sees Jesus on the shore, jump out? Of the boat, I mean, like this is like, like I think about Forrest Gump, right? You think about that one scene where Gump is Forrest Gump's on the on the on the boat, and he sees Lieutenant Dan on the pier. Remember that scene? And he just he gets so excited, he just throws himself into the water, and the boat crashes, and he just swims to the shore. Like this, this is Peter's reaction when he recognizes Jesus. On the shore, like, why all of a sudden this change of heart the where he would want to be with Jesus? What's not he running to get away from Jesus? Well, guys, here's why. Here's why this miracle, this fish story is here. And here's why Peter responds this way. It's because in Luke 5, we are given the story when Jesus first invited Peter to be his disciple. I was gonna just like try to retell it, but let, let me just read it for you. And I want you to pay attention. Look at these parallels. Luke chapter 5, verse 1 through 11 says this One day, as Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats. And the one belonging to Simon, now that's Simon Peter, that's Peter, that's the guy we've been talking about. And Jesus asked him to put out a little from the shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, said to Peter, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish, that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats uh, so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Jesus, instead of walking away from Peter, says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. Guys, you see why Peter flung himself into the sea that day when he realized it was Jesus on the shore? It's because Jesus had just reenacted the very scene of his initial call for Peter to follow him. And as Peter is swimming like a madman to the shore, I guarantee you what he is thinking about is what his response was to Jesus that day. That after, the, the, after Peter had recognized that this was like God in the boat, like this is the Lord or the Messiah in the boat, like he, he said, Look, you know, get away from me, a sinful man. And he's thinking about Jesus. He didn't get away, but he invited, he offered Peter to be close to him and be his disciple. And Peter is thinking about this. I guarantee you he's thinking about this as he swims through the shore. Because at that moment, as he's swimming, he is the most mindful of the fact that he was right. He is a sinful man. And yet here Jesus is, pursuing him, inviting him personally in an intimate way. I want restoration. I want friendship once again with you, Peter. Come, follow me. This is what happens in verse 8. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, And about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. And some bread. And Jesus said to them, "Bring some of the fish you have just caught." And so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, and he dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, "Come and have breakfast." And none of the disciples dared ask him, "Who are you?" For they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, and he took the bread, and he gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples. After he was raised from the dead. Okay, can you see this? I mean, Jesus is <laughs> soaking wet, failure of a friend, comes crawling out of the water. And what does Jesus say to him? You know, if I'm Jesus, I'm not nicer here. But what does Jesus say to him? Come. Come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. Really? Come and have breakfast? Now, this is, guys, you got to recognize, in in, in the ancient culture, like to invite someone to have a meal with you meant even more than it does today. And now it's still, we recognize that's an invitation to friendship. I mean, it's a nice thing to do. But in the ancient culture, this was more, even more. It It was a pledge. It was a statement. It was an invitation to say, I want to be friends with you. I want us to be close. I want us to have an intimate relationship. And so when Jesus says, come and have breakfast, and he has prepared this meal for Peter and the other disciples, and they sit down, and then this part, I mean, this is Jesus' third appearance. When he rises again, you think it's love, real important, and we need lots of details what that was like. We get five verses about this breakfast. <laughs> Like why so much emphasis on the breakfast, the fish and how many there were and all this stuff and what kind of fire they cooked it around and all that stuff. It's like because the breakfast was the invitation to restored relationship. This meal with Jesus was Jesus's enacting grace to Peter. It was a statement of, hey Peter, I know you know Because you messed up. But I want you to know that our relationship is not based on what you have done. See, that's why I went to the cross. I died for your sins so that restoration would be possible. And now I stand out of the tomb to say, I offer you. I invite you. experience restored relationship with me again not based on what you've done but based on what I have done for you this is what I want come and have breakfast because I just love this story I love I just love I love this story because you see what Jesus is doing with Peter is what he wants to do with each one of us no matter what you or I have done, no matter what you or I are doing, no matter what you or I will do, this is Jesus' invitation. Be restored to me. Be reconciled to God. I died to enable it. Here's my offer for you to now experience it. As This is the greatest message of hope there is. Now, before I go on, I'm going to wrap up in just a second. But I do want to say, like, you know, the big question, the big elephant in the room is that if this, like, is this true? Because if this is what God is like, this is what God has done, like, is this true? Or is this just a myth? Is this a legend? I mean, we just show up on Easter to celebrate cool stories. Or do I really? Can I really have this hope of present restoration to Jesus, based on what He's done, and uh, with that, the future hope of restoration for all of eternity with Jesus? Or is this just, you know, just a cool story? Let me tell you, there is great reason—I would say, convincing reason—to believe that this is not just a cool story; it's not just a legend. It's not just a myth. And here's why. Just one reason. I don't have time to give. I could talk to this about this for a long time, but I won't. I'll spare you that. If you want to talk more later, I'd love to talk to you. But here's one reason. This reason is because this story right here, it doesn't read like a legend. And here's what I mean by this. Uh, N.T. Wright, some of you all are familiar with him. Great theologian. Uh, wrote uh, an 800-page uh, exhaustive scholarly work on the resurrection of Jesus called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And in that book, he makes the case, and it's been verified and verified and verified, that, it would, that this, this narrative of Jesus' resurrection, along with the other biblical narratives of the resurrection, don't read like legends. And the reason why, he says, it's because of the details. It's because of the details. Like, do you notice the 153 fish? Like, what's up with 153 fish? Matt Cooper, this is a favorite story just because of that. He's like, how did they get that number? I mean, were they sit there with the resurrected Jesus counting the fish? And like, hey, it's cool to see you, Jesus, but you've got to see how many fish there are. I mean, how did they get 153? Did Jesus just tell them? Hey, it's 153 fish, by the way. But anyway, they know Like... <laughs> But here's the thing, if this is a myth, if this is a legend, then, then why that number? It makes no sense. The only thing that, that people can do is to say, well, that number must be symbolic. It must have some kind of sy- symbolic meaning. But here's the thing, people have tried for centuries to t- come up with how 153 is symbolic, and they can't come up with anything convincing. 153 is just a random number, it's not symbolic, it doesn't symbolize anything. So then others people say, well, okay, well, if it's not symbolic, then they must have just added it in to make this legend feel more real. But the problem with that idea is that descriptive fictional writing, where they use details to make a a fictional story more vivid and realistic, that didn't start showing up in literature to a couple hundred years ago. That two thousand years ago, that would never been done. I mean, you read Hercules, you don't see them anything like Hercules had sweat on his brow as he walked across the room and the floorboards creaked. I mean, there's not there's you read it doesn't read that way. That's not how myth or legend was written. And T. Wright points that out and he says, look this these numbers. 153, or the weird information about Peter seeing Jesus and recognizing him, and so he puts the cloak on, he ties it up, and he's saying, why do you tie the cloak on and then jump in the water? People take off clothes and jump in the water. That's weird. Why include that? It makes no sense. 153 fish tying the cloak on. The details found in the narratives of Jesus, this resurrection accounts. So guys, all of them make no sense unless they are eyewitness accounts unless they are historical accounts that actually happened. See, this was written because John was there, and John remembers, hey, there were 153 fish. This was written because when he said, hey, it's the Lord, he remembers Peter in his franticness, ties the cloak on his waist, and then jumps in the water. Friends, for this reason and many more, here's the hope. Here's the promise. Here's what we can be certain of. This happened. Jesus rose from the dead. And when he rose, he rose with the mission to bring restoration. And he offers it to Peter even though he had sinned so severely. And if he would offer it to Peter, he stands here and offers it to you today. Come and eat. Come and have breakfast. Come and be restored based not on what you do for me but what I have done for you. I want restoration with you. I've paid in full to bring it about through my death. I rose again so you can experience it, that we can be together. Revelation 3.20 sums this up. Jesus' invitation this way. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Because this is Jesus' invitation to all of us. This is his offer. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you will do, Jesus says, here I am. Stand at the door and knock. I want a restored relation with you. Friends, if you've never placed your faith in Christ alone, you never believed that Jesus died for you, that he rose again, that he is Lord and Savior who offers this to you, you have an opportunity even today to say, I believe that. I want that. I want to receive your invitation, your offer of restoration. And at that moment, in faith in him, you are restored to Jesus. And you are promised at that moment the future hope that you'll be with him forever in a real, a real, physical, material, personal eternity with him. And if you have walked away from Jesus, you think there's, I mean, I just messed up too bad. There's nothing that he would ever have. There's nothing I can ever do to make things right. Hear Jesus say, now come and eat. Come and have breakfast. See, I've I've done everything that needs to be done to make sure that we can be okay. I have paid for that. Come back. I'm pursuing you. I stand on the door and knock. Today, you can say, I'm coming back. I'm, an offer. I'm accepting the offer of restoration. Because this is our awesome God. This is the hope that we celebrate today. It's the hope that your heart needs and wants. And this hope will not disappoint you because Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let me pray, and then let's worship him. Father God, we give you praise. Because you sent your son, and Jesus, you came willingly to die in our place. And your resurrection tells us that the debt that had to be paid was paid in full. Your resurrection stands as a, a, a gigantic eternal receipt that says that everything that needed to be done to enable us to be restored to you, God, has been done. And now we just are given this invitation. God, I pray for those in here who have never received that invitation that they would today. And I pray for those who have run, walked away or run away from you, that they would hear you once again coming after them and extending the invitation, come and eat. And Lord, that we would return to you based on what you have done, not what we have done. And Lord, we would in, in experience intimate, joy-filled relationship with you both now and forevermore. We love you, Jesus. May these songs of praise glorify you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.